Thanks, Matt. As he prayed, we are in the process of sending out a daughter church reconciliation, and they are one session into launch team training. And if you are interested at all, you're not too late. Uh, you can still get on board that and go check that out and participate. Uh, Matt, you'll be there this week, right? He'll be there. Uh, there's a number of folks from our church who are uh, investigating going with that. And if you're at all interested, we encourage you to come. The training's on Thursday night. And if you want more information about that or you want to just talk to one of the leadership about that, I'd be happy to talk to you after our service. As we've done together, we're going to read God's Word out loud. Um, and today's sermon has a number of passages. So we're going to read this out line by line. We're not, though, going to read all the, citate, the scripture, scripture references. So are you ready? Find your bulletin or look on the wall behind me. Three, two, one, go. I was distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I've heard my father I have made known to you. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. Before I jump into today's sermon, I want to give a qualification on something that I said last week as an application of our sermon. I've been preaching through this series on being single in the church, and last week's sermon was about us being family and the household of God and the primacy of that. And by way of application, I made the point that it's really important for us to express affection for one another. And I said, hey, it'd be great if our church was more of a hugging church. And um, I think that those are great things. But I wanted to qualify that. Sometimes I th say things in too broad a brush. And I just wanted to nuance that just a little bit. Um, I want to particularly be careful of that in showing affection between genders, uh, particularly for women in our congregation. I just want to be sensitive that, like, there's a type of touch which is uh, friendly and kind, and there's a type of touch which is inappropriate. And, but we need to be really careful, and not fearful, but careful, loving, respectful. Um, no one should feel threatened or um, uh, feel like this is, this is too much, this is inappropriate. And so I, I just want there to be good boundaries and also good warmth in our congregation. So I just wanted to nuance that. Um, let me pray for our sermon this morning. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our fortress and our redeemer. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Last year, a new romantic comedy came out. 
starring uh, Rebel Wilson uh, called it, Isn't It Romantic? But this rom-com was actually a satire. It was a parody of rom-coms. Now, so Rebel Wilson plays a woman named Natalie, who's a cynical woman living in New York who calls romance and romantic comedies, quote, unhealthy, unrealistic, and toxic, especially for women. But then she wakes up to find herself living in a rom-com world. So everything looks like it's been filtered through an Instagram filter. Uh, she wakes up in her apartment that was really small. Now it's suddenly five sizes too big. She wakes up in full hair and makeup. There are, there's music everywhere all the time. Uh, she's walking down the street, and handsome men who look like William Hemsworth uh, can't take her eyes off her. People in the street are far too friendly. There's, there are even two choreographed dance musical numbers that she finds herself stuck in. And she describes this new world. Now he describes her new rom-com world as the matrix for lonely women. <laughs> uh, but the movie is satirically making a point that maybe romance isn't the answer to our need for intimacy. The hole in Natalie's life is not filled by having perfect hair or dance tunes. It's the need for someone to know her and love her. It's the need for intimacy, and that romantic comedies, like, they don't really answer that. So we're in a six-week series called Single Like Jesus on being single, on being single in the church, and if you've, uh, we're exploring these six myths of being single, and I, here's where we've been so far. We've said myth number one, being single is weird. Myth number two, being single requires some superpower or special calling. Myth number three, last week, being single means no family. And today we're looking at this one. Being single means no intimacy. I want to examine that myth because in today's world, it has become sort of an unquestioned assumption that to be being single biblically so, being celibate, uh, honoring God in those ways means that intimacy is absent in your life that those are opposites, those are mutually exclusive, and I think that is very wrong. So here's my outline for you this morning, if you take notes. Number one, rethinking the answers to loneliness. Number two, the other F word. Number three, the marks of true friendship. Uh, rethinking the answers to loneliness. Now, it is no secret, this has been in lots of news outlets, saying we are in an age of unprecedented loneliness, that people feel lonely in staggering numbers right now. In fact, the, the uh, global health company Cigna did a huge study, uh, a huge statistical study, and they looked at the issues of loneliness in our country as a health risk. And here's some of the data they collected. They said 46% of Americans report they are sometimes or always feeling alone or left out. 27% of Americans rarely or never feel as though there are people who really understand them. 43% of Americans sometimes or always feel that their relationships are not meaningful or that they're isolated from others. 20% report that they rarely or never feel close to people or feel like there is no one they can talk to. They found that Americans who live with others are less likely to feel lonely, but that is not true if you're a single parent the numbers are much higher for those who are single parents. 
Only around half of Americans have meaningful interpersonal social interactions, such as an extended conversation with a friend or spending quality time with others on a daily basis. They found that Generation Z, which is a number of you in this room, ages 18 through 22, describe yourself as the loneliest generation and claims to be in worse mental health as a result. And they found that social media is no predictor that the numbers for those who are heavy social media users and those who never use social media are almost the same with regard to loneliness. So intimacy, if that is the antidote to loneliness, where do we get it? Where does that come from? Now, the wrong answers, and the first one you'll probably anticipate because I'm a Christian preacher, right, um, is hookup culture, sex. You know, we live in a hookup culture, which means it's actually very easy to have sex with someone that you barely know or have just met. There are apps on your iPhone to help you do that. But it is a huge error to confuse that with intimacy. Think about this. Sexual union is designed by God to deepen intimacy, to express intimacy in a covenant relationship under God. That's what He designed it for. That's what it's for. And this is why generations before us, and this comes from older translations of the Bible, describe, use the word knowing someone as a euphemism for sex. There was something that expressed intimacy, but didn't give it. It didn't produce it. It's possible then to have lots of sex and no intimacy. But you expected I was going to say that, right? Like this is the church, that's the Christian answer, that's what I'm supposed to say. But here's the churchy answer to this, and this is why this is also a problem. I talked about this a little bit last week, the, the idea of the Christian soulmate. Christian Mingle, in their About section on their website, advertises their, web, their, their website this way. This, Christian Mingle is the ideal place for Christian men and women to find friends, dates, and even soulmates. Or maybe you have heard or said these things to other people. God has someone special for you just out there waiting for you to discover who that is. Make sure you wait for the one. Don't settle. Um, all of that is some kind of weird mashup between romantic comedies and Calvinism. Uh, you know, that is nowhere in the Bible, as I said last week. Nowhere in the Bible are we promised there is a soulmate for every person. Now, I want to take that another step today. I want you to understand how that does damage. Because what that communicates, if you've ever heard that or assumed that, is that you are incomplete without the other person who is going to make you whole. Some, somehow there's one other person in the world who can say, you complete me, right, and make you whole a whole person. And, you know, we end up, that's not in the Bible. That's, it sounds good. It, it's not true. And that is way too much freight to put on any relationship. I mean, that, those are crippling pressures that you put on a relationship. Now, where does that come from? Here's where I think that comes from. Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2. That marriage is somehow the answer to loneliness, that being single is the cause of loneliness. But here's the question. Is that true? Is that true biblically? The answer is no, not really. The Bible doesn't ever say marriage is the answer to loneliness. Being single is the cause of loneliness. And, you know, perhaps you're thinking, well, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't God say 
It's not good for man to be alone before the fall, before the creation of Eve. Um, and of course, yes, he did. But he was stating a fact. I want you to hear this. He was stating a fact. He was not talking about how Adam felt. Adam enjoyed perfect fellowship, perfect face-to-face communion with God in a place of incredible, perfect comfort. Adam, apart from God telling him, had no idea that there could be another, that there was something deficient or lacking. God was, it was God's idea, not Adam's like, I'm so lonely. No, God's idea to create another. See, maybe God's statement here is not surprising. After all, God created human beings in his image. I heard a counselor say this recently, Adam Young. He said this, we are made in the image of a community, a God who is three in one. We're made in that kind of relationship. So God is saying, yes, it is not good for Adam to be alone, but it doesn't follow. It doesn't immediately follow that marriage is the answer for all of loneliness or that singleness is the cause of that. It can be part of an answer, but no soulmate is promised to fill that gap. And no soulmate can fill that space. Consider another way. If marriage were the answer to loneliness, why is there no marriage in heaven? Why is that? You know, here's the summary. Marriage is not an answer to, not the fix to loneliness, and singleness is not the cause of loneliness. Rather, the Bible gives us something that is probably so simple that you may want to throw a chair at me this morning. I mean, like, here's the other F word, friendship. I mean, it's so basic, so obvious. You're like, really? In 2 Samuel 1.26, we read how David mourned the death of his close friend Jonathan. Now, these two should never have been friends. Humanly speaking, they should have been mortal enemies. David, next in line to the throne, Jonathan, the son of the king. Both men were on the direct collision course for that throne room. And yet, over their lifetime, David describes Jonathan in such intimate friendship terms. And here we read in in 2 Samuel 1 of David mourning over Jonathan's death. And we listen to these words. He said, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary surpassing even the love of women. Now, let's be honest. Hearing those words, many people roll their eyes. I mean, today it seems almost impossible for somebody to read those words out loud without assuming that David and Jonathan were enjoying a sexual relationship. I mean, isn't that what you sniff off this passage? A lot of people do. Like, this is a gay relationship. Um, Am I the only person who's ever heard that before? Okay, thank you. You're all awake this morning, right? I just want to make sure, right? Um, But that is neither necessary, nor is it even likely. That tells us more about where our culture is. I mean, if you read through 1 and 2 Samuel, you'll discover that David's relationships, at this point he has three wives, and his relationships with women were far from simple. They were very complicated. And by comparison, he found his friendship with Jonathan something easy, something that was 
uh, delightful and, and actually not hard for him by comparison. See, our culture just assumes intimacy and sex are pretty much the same thing. We've collapsed those into one. And so we can't conceive that there's such a thing as intimacy of friendship here without something going on between David and Jonathan. They must have been gay. There must have been something going on here. We don't have this category anymore of deep friendship between two people of the same gender. Rosaria Butterfield calls that homosociality. C.S. Lewis, who was an Oxford professor, wrote a book about love and about relationships called The Four Loves, and he said this, those who cannot conceive of friendship as a substantive love but only a disguise or elaboration of romantic love betray the fact that they have probably never had a friend. You hear that? See, part of our problem in imagining this has been the eclipsing of friendship. That we, we may not have ever experienced this. In recent years, social media has turned friend from noun to verb. And in doing so, has greatly degraded the word. Has greatly downgraded the word. You know, a friend, we friend someone when we add them to our list of contacts who can see your other, who your other friends are. The average American uh, the average person on Facebook has 237 friends. Now, how many of those people do they talk to regularly? How many of those people do they really see? I mean, those people get to see the airbrushed versions, but they don't really see kitchen table you. Right? We've, we've downgraded that. And by turning it from noun to verb, we've lost something really significant. And the advertising companies know this. They know we're lonely. They're making lots of money off of that. Revenue coming from advertising on social media was over $107 billion last year. They are making money on our loneliness. And the stats, let me just say this, the stats on men, especially middle-aged men in friendship, are just downright discouraging. (laughs) Um, There have been numerous studies showing how hard it is for men to make friends and keep friends. Bromance movies, you know, super bad. I love you, man. They show how hard it is for two men to get near to each other emotionally without being considered a, being worried about being considered a couple. Um, so what do we do? We go it alone. Men go it alone. I think that there's equal pressure on women. I think society, especially Raleigh, North Carolina, has put so much pressure on like women to have it all and do it all that instead of getting one another in, near one another in friendship, a lot of times there's a tremendous amount of competition and comparison between women, which is poison for friendship. Even 60 years ago, C.S. Lewis could see that friendship, quote, has become something quite marginal, not a main course in life's banquet, but a diversion, something that fills up the chinks of one's time. And he concluded this, few value it because few experience it. Now, i got to say this, guilty as charged, okay? Uh, for years, planting a church in Philadelphia in my 30s, I, I thought friendship was icing on the cake. I'm like, this is extra. Man, I, am, I got a job to do. Uh, I got a family. I got kids. Like, friendship, yeah, that'd be nice, but it's not that, it's not essential. Like, I don't need this. I mean, do you find yourself in that category? Have you been there? Like, this is extra. Be nice if I could have it, but it's not essential. 
And I think the sad thing is that many people find churches to be some of the places where they are the most lonely, where they don't find friendship. Friendship, it seems, is dispensable. But man, that is so different from what we see in this book. That is so different. Why don't you just consider Jesus and Paul, the Apostle Paul. Jesus did a life for three years with a group of 12 men. They, they spent lots of time together. And in particular, there are three of them that, that were particularly close to Jesus. One of whom, John, describes himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, because he had this, such a sense of closeness with Jesus. And, and a lot of people look at the Apostle Paul and think of him as like the Lone Ranger Apostle or Rambo of the Apostles, right? Like, going it alone. But if you read Romans, the last chapter of the book of Romans, it is filled with all these very personal greetings with people who were close friends of his. This was not the Lone Ranger. And in John 15, 15, we read something that's just shocking. It may not shock you because you've heard it a bunch before, but this is shocking. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Now, let's just pause and remember who we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. Jesus, the one who we confess in our confessions that say things like, very God of very God, light from light, the the one who Scripture tells us upholds everything in the universe by His powerful Word. Jesus, who's pictured for us in the book of Revelation as a rider on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and justice in his hands. Now, that Jesus. Okay, Jesus has the right to tell all of us exactly what to do. And yet, in John 15, he says, I don't call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends because all I've known from the Father I've made known to you. That kind of friendship, that kind of intimacy. See, Jesus, who has the right to call all of us employees, interns, lackeys, servants, slaves, minions, soldiers, uh, residents, you know, like fill in the blanks. And yet, what does he call us? He calls us friends. Intimacy. He's saying, like, look, this is friendship. This is intimacy. It's being deeply known and deeply loved. And he even puts more flesh on this. He takes it up a notch. In that same passage, two verses before, he says, you know, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. He tells us how his is a costly friendship. Jesus told them, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Right? You have a lot of pseudo-friends. I have a lot of pseudo-friends. We have a lot of friends who are great on good days, who kind of know some stuff about you, but they'll let you down if everything's on the line. But listen, you have a super friend who was closer than a brother. When Jesus was put on trial, all of his friends abandoned him. They all rejected him. He told them that they were going to. He wasn't surprised. He didn't even seem all that upset about it. Kind of like, yeah, I knew this was going to happen. Why was he so forsaken by his friends? So that you would never, ever, ever be forsaken by him. That is the kind of friend that he is to you. He will never leave you. He is a true friend, the perfect friend. You know, C.S. Lewis says this is how two friends get kind of become friends. 
they may not have a lot in common, but they sort of bump into each other and go like, what? You two? I thought I was the only one. And they find they have that in common. This is what you have in common with Jesus. You know what you have in common with the Lord Jesus? The things you worry about. Because those are his concerns. Your future. He thinks about that. You are always on his mind. Your sin. He has paid for it all. He has bled for it. He cares about your future. He thinks about you. He understands you. He loves you. You are not alone. He's here right now. He is with us by the power of His Spirit. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, would you start your friendship with Him today? Can I invite you to that? You know, brothers and sisters, do you know this friend? I mean, we give a lot of lip service to Jesus. We give a lot of nods, like it's great he died on the cross. But do you know he is this kind of friend? Okay, I am asking you a question. Do you know he's this kind of friend? Do you know it? Is he this kind of friend to you? He is. But... But Jesus is not enough. And I know it may sound like bizarro world to hear a pastor say that, that Jesus is not enough. But he's not. We also need friends. He has designed us for in the flesh, skin and bone, coffee drinking together friends. He's made us like this. So I want to look at the marks of Christian friendship. Remember Adam? talked about it earlier, alone in the garden before Eve was created. Um, in his book, Intimate Allies, Dan Allender is a Christian counselor and psychologist, makes this observation. He says, when God said, it is not good for Adam to be alone, and he made Eve, he was demonstrating something profound. You and I are made for relationships. We're made for relationships. Here's how Allender says it, much better than I could, so I'm going to quote him. He says, God does not exclusively fill the human heart. He made humankind to need more than himself. The staggering humility of God to make something that was not fully satisfied in him alone is incomprehensible. Amen. The implication is not, therefore, oh, marriage is what's in view. No, it's much more fundamental than that. It's much more basic than that. Relationship is what's in view. Relationships are what's in view. You were designed pre-fall for skin and bones relationships with other people. You need friendships. It is not an extra. So let me be very explicit about the application of this. Your spouse, if you are married, yes, should be your best friend. That's something to really strive for, but not your only friend. Not your only friend. There's something I see in the South, particularly among men, where this is a fatal problem. Many men are only emotionally connected to a wife and nobody else. And as I said earlier, that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on a marriage. One person cannot be your everything. That is really unbiblical and it's really unfair. You need friends. And the book of Proverbs shows us, we're going to walk through this. 
it says that we cannot live wisely in this world without friends. So it shows us the marks of Christian friendship. And I'm going to walk through six of these. Very, very brief, but I want to lay these out before you. Proverbs is good for this. First, friendship is voluntary. Look at Proverbs 18.24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, family is not voluntary. You never got to choose the people who are your brothers, sisters, mom, dad, aunts, uncles, right? But friends, one of the things that is so glorious about friendship, it is that it, it is voluntary. It is chosen. It's not obligation. It is choice. C.S. Lewis put, points out the uniqueness of friendship, friend love. He says, friendship is the least natural of the loves, the least instinctive, the least organic, biological, gregarious, even necessary. The species, biologically considered, has no need of it. You know, marriage is not just close friendship with sex added, nor is, it, nor is close friendship marriage without sex. Um, marriage, by definition, is exclusive because it's covenantal. It's one man, one woman before the Lord for a life. That's the covenant. But one of the glories of friendship and why you need this if you are married in addition to a spouse is that you can have lots of friends that are close and they're not mutually exclusive. I can be friends with you and with you, right? And there's no competition. Friendship is voluntary and it's non-exclusive. That's one of the best things about it. Second, friendship is not fleeting. We read Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 26, many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. You know, when someone loves you, when someone loves you good and bad, and they don't have to, they choose to, that person is a friend. A true friend is rock solid. You have lots of people who you know who, if you're going through something hard, or like, hey, I'll pray for you, let me know if you need something. A friend is somebody who shows up. A friend is someone who shows up unannounced on your doorstep and says, I'm really sorry. Can I just be with you? That's friendship. Being with. You know, a faithful friend who loves at all times, that person is rare. A faithful friend who can find. You know, what do the Beatles sing? I get by, a little help from my friends, right? Third, friendship is honest. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. A faithful friend is going to provoke you. They're going to challenge you. You're not going to agree with everything they have to say, but you'll want to listen. We need that. All of us need that. I quoted Ray Ortland last week. He says this, Our own family backgrounds have left every one of us a little bit weird. <laughs> so you need an honest friend who's coming from the outside who can hold up a mirror, you can say, help me see what I don't see. Because, man, all of us have enormous blind spots. Like a friend can help you see what you don't see. A friend is someone who knows your soul, not someone who you just like to smoke meats with, have a few hobbies with, but someone who knows you. A friend who's someone who knows the real you, who you tell your secrets to. You know, in a sense, you don't need a friend. Biologically, you don't need one. Financially, you can survive without a friend. Nobody ever died for a lack of friendship. But as busy as we are, unless we make this a priority, this will always be at the bottom of the to-do list. It'll always be at the bottom. 
But you cannot become wise without a Christian friend speaking into your life. The wounds of a friend help you grow. Fourth, friendship is mutual. Proverbs 27, 17 says this, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It, it, is, it isn't one way where one person's asking all the questions and the other person's giving all the answers. That's counseling. That's not friendship. Friendship is when two people are asking each other questions, giving each other feedback, pushing a little bit. Hey, I just want to nudge you a little on this one. I don't agree with you. See, picture a knife. One-way friendship is like a rag polishing a knife. Two-way friendship, mutual, real friendship, is like a piece of iron, like the file sharpening the knife. And there's tension. There's friction. Um, you know, when a, it hurts when a friend challenges you, provokes you. Do you see there's a difference between hurting a person and harming a person? Uh, a lot of us feel like, oh, feeling loved, that's what I really want. But there's a difference between feeling loved and actually really being loved by another person. Right? Hurting sometimes is actually a way of helping. Jesus came, and he spoke with a lot of clarity and a lot of truth, and he hurt some people. That's why they wanted to kill him. They didn't harm anyone. A friend may cut you. A friend may wound you, all in the name of being a good friend. And if you don't understand that, you're liable to cut off or blame people in your life who get close and say something you don't like, because you don't have the maturity to receive it and say, Man, I didn't even like the approach, but maybe there's something there. See, if you receive it, you'll grow in wisdom. It'll sharpen you. Fifth, friendship is regular. Proverbs 27.10 says, Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. See, friendship has to be regular. It's got to be proximate. It's got to be close. Not every once in a while. That's why the proverb speaks of one who is near in your life better than somebody who's far away. So those Facebook friends... Those are acquaintances. Friendship requires proximity, regular contact, a weekly walk, lunch every other week, a phone call a couple times a week, not Facebook friends, and regularity is going to require something from you. It, it will require sacrifice. It's going to mean if you're going to prioritize this, you're going to have somebody in your life like this, it's going to mean you don't get as much stuff done. You know, it's going to mean you're going to get interrupted. It's going to be frustrating. Uh, but without regularity, you are not friends. You are just acquaintances. You are friendly. And man, we're good at friendly in Raleigh, right? Um, you know, the, the person who's like, hey, we should get together sometime, that is not a friend. Friendship also, number six, finally, is not too regular. Proverbs 25, 17 says this, let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. <laughs> friends need time together and they need time apart. So some of y'all are way too young to remember this, but Kenny Rogers used to sing, right? You got to know when to hold them. You got to know when to fold them, right? Like in heaven, one day you will have thousands and thousands of people who don't get tired and weary or irritated. They never run out of time for being together and enjoying one another, but not now, okay? Not now. <laughs> there are times when your friends need a break. Enough is enough. 
Don't smother your friends. Like Ben Franklin used to say, guests and fish stink after three days. Don't wear them out. I want to say this as a pastor to you in this process. Look, being a church or even part of a community group is no means for guaranteeing friendship. We don't write on our bulletin, come find all your friends here. Nobody is guaranteeing that in a community group. Last week's sermon, we talked about what it means to be a family. We live together in community groups and practice that as a church so we can practice being a family, like supporting each other, caring for each other, praying for each other. Those are not necessarily guarantees of friendship. You may not find friends in your community group. That's okay. We know that. Friendship is a whole other level or step beyond what we're describing in being a family together. And it is going to be really hard. We don't know how to do this. We're in a culture that doesn't know how to do this anymore. Um, This is something that is going to be really challenging to pursue. But all of us, married and single, young and old, all of us need to take steps toward pursuing friendship because we need it. Um, Susan sent me this this past week, and I, I just, I, it just fit so well, even though I hate Lord of the Rings illustrations. <laughs> so in his fantasy novel, Fellowship of the Ring, J.R.R. Tolkien gives us this vibrant picture of friendship. There are these four hobbits, and one of them named Frodo is called to this really difficult task. A quest that is probably going to cost him years of his life and maybe his life. And he receives this and is like, okay, I'm committed. And he's prepared to go and do it. And his friends stop him. And they have this conversation. But it doesn't seem I can trust anyone, said Frodo. Sam looked at him unhappily. It all depends on what you want, put in Mary. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours better than you can keep it yourself, but you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone or go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Now, the reason I share that is I think that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote into these books his own experience. Tolkien was in a regular weekly gathering of friends with the guy who I've been quoting throughout the sermon on friendship, C.S. Lewis. They gathered to eat. They gathered to smoke pipes. They gathered to drink brown liquid together. (laughs) And they shared a depth of friendship. There were four of them that were kind of the main foursome of this group. And over years, Tolkien experienced friendship. And he wrote this into his novel. And here's a different way to view these books. Not as epic adventure, not as deliverance from all evil in the empire, but a story of the power of friendship, of how the power of these four together changed the world. You know, I think that this sermon, sermon is probably going to stir up a lot in a, this congregation. And I think that probably some of you are struggling right now because you're lonely and you don't have friends You have a lot of acquaintances. You have a lot of people who know stuff about you. Or you've tried, and it's just been a struggle. And so I want to encourage you this morning, like this may leave you kind of feeling lonely. But I want you to take 
all of those feelings to the one who is your real friend, who sticks closer than a brother, and ask him, Lord Jesus, you know me better than I know myself. Will you send me a friend? Will you help me learn what it means to be a friend? What are the ways I need to change and grow in what I understand my friendships have been like? How can I learn to become a friend? Lord, help me. And help me to step further into my friendship with you. Help me to take the longings that I have and also turn those toward you. He longs to fill your heart. He longs to draw near if you will but give him space. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this morning. And Lord, no matter where we find ourselves, married, single, young, old, lots of friends, very few friends, Lord, each of us have a deep ache, Lord, to be known and to be cherished and to be understood for someone to look us in the eye and really care. Father, we thank you that you draw near to us, that you have called us friends. Lord, we pray that you would help us Lord, to take a deep dive into that in our lives, to seek that out, to nurture that. Lord, we also pray, Lord, would you provide for us friendship? Help us not to be demanding and greedy, but Lord, help us to go to you. Help us to look. Help us to care. Lord, help us to show up. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.